CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Truly the Super Bowl of The Hash. We get to gather for a few days in person, IRL, to talk about stuff. As you might know, The Hash is our daily show on Coindesk TV. We get you up to speed on all that's going on in the world of crypto. Just because it's consensus doesn't mean that crypto news takes a break. So we are gonna dive in with some stories and we're also gonna feature some nice interviews because there's a lot of cool folks here. We're gonna get to it. I'm gonna toss it straight to Jen. She's taking us with the opening story about a little bit of news out of the Bahamas. What do you got? We are going off to the Bahamas, but first, Will, I want to say your headshot is great. It's a good headshot. If we could get that headshot back up at some point during this show to just <laughs> give it a little round of applause, that would be you. awesome. Okay, we're going off to the Bahamas. They are responding to the FTX fallout. A new bill published for comment is going to include restrictions on stable coins, proof of work mining, and crypto staking. Zach, I'm kicking it back to you. We've talked a lot about these island nations responding to the FTX fallout, wondering what's going to happen next when it comes to regulation. What do you make of this? To be expected, right? Pretty big black eye for the Bahamas as it sought to become the crypto Bahamas. We had that giant event there last spring in which FTX and SALT showed up in force and brought everyone down there to say, hey, we're a destination now. Let's put it on the map. You know, luckily we're going to get to hear more from the Bahamas about their sort of change of plans. But I think this is pretty expected that we'd see some tightening after the massive fraud that occurred uh, based out of the Bahamas. So probably, honestly, probably no fault of their own that this happened, that this fraud was perpetrated against them and others in the space. But certainly the response that, hey, we need to tighten this up a little bit seems to make a ton of sense to me. But I don't know. Maybe that's just the midwit take. What do you got? Yeah, no, this, this whole story actually made me laugh a little bit this morning. It kind of brought me back to like the 60s and 70s in Las Vegas after the FBI came in and like cleared town. They're like, get the hookers out of town, get the gambling out of town. The FBI came in and like cleared it up and shut it down. And then the Las Vegas like city council came through and was like, we're going to pass some legislation and clean it up now. You know, you kind of missed it by six, 12 months, guys. Like it already happened. SBF is already on parental watch out in San Francisco. Okay. Like. We're, we're past that story already, and now you guys are gonna pass this legislation. So that gave me a little bit of a laugh. 
I don't think anyone's going to the Bahamas for crypto for a little bit. Like even Coinbase with its recent announcement talked about Bermuda, okay? There's a lot of other islands in the Caribbean where we can launch our like shell funds and we can do that. We don't have to go back to the Bahamas. Yeah, I guess it's like some significant baggage here, right? A lot so, of baggage. A lot of baggage. So I guess I gotta toss it to you. Like Wendy, like do you think that the Bahamas can overcome the baggage associated with FTX being all about it last year before things hit the fan? So as a social media cringe influencer, we all know that it is three to five business days where people generally forget. Like that's a law in business, or a general rule in business, it's and it's a general rule in general. But one of the things I have to add to this story, which is interesting, do we even have a law for proof of reserves on exchanges that um, customer funds are to be segregated? Because that seems to be the biggest failure in crypto with a lot of these exchanges failing, is that the funds were not segregated, the companies used the funds, they used all of the funds, and it became very, very problematic. So you can crack down on crypto all you want. You can crack down on staking, you can you know, say, we're not gonna allow X, Y, and Z to happen, but unless we actually segregate the funds, there's gonna be another FTX, there's gonna be more exchanges collapsing. It's interesting to me that stablecoins, uh, proof of work mining are included in this bill as we talk about it, like responding to the FTX fallout. As we know, the FTX fallout was really just like poor management through and through and quite frankly, fraud. <laughs> and so to see the Bahamas roping in different aspects of the crypto industry sounds so familiar to what's happening here in the US. And Wendy, I agree with you. I think people will forget. I don't think crypto is dead in the Bahamas. It will be interesting to see what comes out with regulation. And maybe it will push people away, but I don't think it's going to, I don't think people are not going to go there just because of SPF. I Zach, mean, who, who doesn't, I'm sorry, Zach, but who doesn't want to go to the Bahamas and start their own crypto company? Why wouldn't she want to? It's got beautiful weather, etc. I mean, I'd rather do it there than Canada. Yeah, but I mean, there's all <laughs> sorts of other like jurisdictions that are saying the same thing, right? And I think like, First of all, Jen, alleged fraud. And as the hash legal <laughs> yeah, expert, sorry, this is a news show. Like, I'm this shocked. Is a show. Well, yes. I'm a shock jock, so Quite I'm going to say there was fraud. fraud. Shock. I'm alleged. Push back and alleged, say please. there was fraud. Anyway, but to go back to the big point, everyone is jockeying for these companies, right? Like the Bahamas, the Bermuda, the Bermuda. Like, you see all these uh, frameworks sprouting up. And I think, sort of, like, what's on trend right now is some of these more restrictive but clear regulatory frameworks, right? The US has kind of lacked that. They're still doing regulation by enforcement rather than like regulation by, hey, play by these rules. So I think we're seeing a trend like as witnessed in Japan, for instance, right? FTX blew up, FTX Japan users were made whole. That's largely because they had a pretty rigorous regulatory framework. So I think like this stuff from other countries is gonna probably happen this but way. But Japan didn't have the, they're not talking about that type of regulatory framework. The reason why Japan users didn't get wrecked is because Japan requires you to actually segregate the funds. And again, this could have happened in the United States of America, but the SEC, our protectors, let us down. And I wanna keep hitting hard on that point that we need to kind of regulate that sector because a lot of these crypto exchanges act as custodians. They kind of act like banks, but not. And I don't think a lot of the aspects of crypto and the fundamentals are the problem. It's a people managing it. Decentralized protocols work, people don't. Yeah, and it's like, you know, they got burned before, right? Like Coincheck, Mt. Gox, like Japan learned its lesson and set up some rules. So maybe these countries will do the same. I guess my question to Will, to close this one out, I want you to throw a dart. Where in the world is the next big crypto country? Mm, good question. One quick note, FTX Bahamas was like a year ago, right? Like yeah, the event, the event ago. itself, yeah. 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 Crazy that the story's happening right now. Uh, I, I'm still bullish on Seychelles, Hong Kong, Singapore. Those seem to be like the jurisdictions a lot of people are operating out of. Can't throw out Dubai, that's always going to be there. If we're gonna look at the Caribbean, 
Looks like Bermuda, but I, like we said, there's a lot of islands there with a lot of open frameworks and a lot of PO boxes you can you know, send checks to if you need to. Got to respect the short game in Bermuda too. Those business shorts, <laughs> those are hot. All right, anyway, let's change gears. I'm going to toss it to Wendy. Go to California. Yeah, so I guess the next crypto-friendly place is going to be California because, oh my God, we're going to like bring out DAOs and Love create it. this really great framework. So apparently there's somebody from, or excuse me, um, A16Z, they're working with Cal or San Francisco Assemblyman, what is his name? Haney, I believe it is. Um, but they're going to establish better framework around DAOs, what they can do, um, integrate them into corporate structure, tax them because California doesn't tax enough of us. 50% tax rate right here. Um, but I want to get your guys' thoughts about that. Do you think California could potentially be a crypto hub? And I won't burst your bubble right away. No, it won't be. But <laughs> this is like an interesting conversation about the DAOification of the states, right? So Utah did this just a few months ago. Wyoming did this, Zach, was it like 12, 18 months ago plus? Yes. Yeah. Control says, okay, yeah. So it was a little bit ago. Uh, but what this essentially is, is basically just adding private keys to an LLC. There's not much more there because we still don't really know what a DAO is. If you think you do, well, you might be a Discord manager and you might have some of the funds personally. Uh, besides that, DAOs don't really exist. But they are pushing for them, right? And maybe in like five, 10 years, we'll actually have DAOs that work. And on a state level, it's important because we need to like tax these things correctly and have good regulations around them before they really get set up. It's kind of funny how like DAOs are the things that states are moving on quickly as opposed to the things that are actually important. So like, again, I don't think DAOs matter that much right now because nothing's really happening that's impactful or valuable with them. But things like stable coins, things like trading, those are the things that matter, and those are the things that states and larger government entities are not doing anything about. But we're, we're DAO-ifying like, all the US. I'm gonna go devil's advocate on you. Like, suspend disbelief for a minute. DAOs are the future of human organization. Yeah, like five, ten years. Come on, man. We gotta get these legal frameworks in place. It's gonna be big. It's gonna be how we interact with this weird internet future that we're all rapidly entering. So the fact that there's some legal frameworks going up around this stuff makes sense to me. I feel like the states are just going to get superseded by the federal government, though, and we've seen with like UkiDAO and like some pretty hardcore, like, no, you guys aren't decentralized. You're you're like a DAO in name only. We've seen that from the CFTC. We've seen that from the SEC. So I'm always a little bit like hesitant to say that these state laws are going to be the fix because the federal regulators are not too keen on this whole thing. But hey, I don't know, Jen, what do you think? Yeah, I think if we look at most DAOs now, I don't think we can find one and say that they're actually decentralized. Like maybe Shapeshift is the most decentralized DAO. Every DAO in existence, okay, it's a news show, almost every DAO <laughs> has an LLC attached to it, right? They have a business that is making business decisions, that's signing contracts, that's signing job contracts, that's employing people, and then they have this decentralized organization that, like Will said, is on Discord and they're making some of the lower level decisions. We've, we've seen the tension between this. I think it was YGG, um, their DAO voted against what the actual LLC attached to the DAO did in a contract and there was like all of this ambiguity. And so I think to start thinking about DAOs and how they operate in the real world now is important because if we don't, we're gonna be sitting here on this show in five years from now going, why didn't we think about this, right? So I think it's important. Wendy, I think it's, Interesting you bring up that tax piece. 
I think the states want to tax these DAOs. There are a bunch of DAOs with a bunch of money in their treasuries that have no way to pay tax because they're not registered. And so if we can register them, we can get them paying taxes. And I think that's kind of one of the motivations behind I this. I mean, th this is why I've been so upset with the SEC is because literally people want to pay taxes. Like I have a business and I want to pay my crypto taxes. Number one, the IRS can't help me any way, shape or form. I've just spent a bunch of money hiring a CPA to find out how much I need to pay to go through all the transactions. But we just want to run businesses and pay our taxes and do things ethically and legally. And they're making it very hard for us. But I will say in a corporate structure, like a large corporate structure, a DAO would work because you would actually be able to see people's feedback on, on specific topics instead of having to send in an email or doing, what are those, those Gallup surveys or those silly things. And I think what actually be really cool and incentivize employees to um, participate. And I'm somebody who came from corporate America and I would have loved to have been able to send some messages to the CEO <laughs> and, and whatnot. Well, let's not forget about those governance tokens, too, right? I think that's a big bonuses. part of DAO. You can actually DAO pay regulation. bonuses in those governance tokens. Right, but are they governance tokens? Are they securities? Who's Time will say? tell. Who's to say? Well, Gary. Gary, <laughs> Gary Gensler is to say. <laughs> Gary Gensler's We all know <laughs> that's going super well. Uh, one thing that could like possibly bubble out of this, right, is the fact that these states are basically setting minimums for what a DAO should be. So perhaps in five to 10 years, if we have some sort of framework for all these state levels, then we'll actually have a minimum level of decentralization for these DAOs to exist, like a platform to build on top of. It's kind of a bummer that that's how it might occur though, because as crypto advocates, we like to think that we might be a little bit less government friendly. We like to think we're entrepreneurial, but in this case, we might just see like the government actually being the ones that are spurring on decentralization because they're writing the rules for us before we even get anywhere. Because obviously with a, the state of DAOs right now, and you even work at DAO for one point, I work at it, DAO. It's, it's not too decentralized and it doesn't seem to be changing very fast. And we are joined now for an interview with Kevin Rose. He is the CEO of The Proof Collective. You may know him from previous sites such as Dig and multiple others. We're happy to have him here. We're gonna talk about some new stuff. Welcome him to the stage. Thanks for having me, appreciate it. Love that, Slightly, love, love that. Uh, younger version of myself there in the picture, I love that too. That's beautiful, beautiful <laughs> folks. I, I gained back 10 years there, that's great. All right, so you have a new collection coming out, 10,000 piece set featuring artists like Beeple and whatnot. Just talk to me about the goals of this new one. You clearly have Moonbirds and other things under your belt. What are you looking to accomplish this time? Yeah, I mean, right now we have this, this collection that is Moonbirds that is essentially like, I'd consider just a pass, an access pass. So, in the same way that you would buy a membership to Mona uh, it's, or, or MoMA, you would hold a Moonbird and get access to great artworks and people happens to be one of our artists that we're gonna be dropping as part of the collection. So this is kind of our one year anniversary drop. So you see a lot of up and coming generative artists, some one of one artists, and uh, as you hold your bird, you actually enter into that drop and then you randomly get selected one of those NFTs from top tier, like well collected blue chip artists. Cool, I'm gonna take the follow-up and then I'll pass it to the homies. But my question is, like, do you have any reflections on sort of keeping the momentum alive with NFT projects, right? Like sustaining the interest beyond the drop seems to be a challenge for sure. a lot of projects. Yeah. So you're, you're, you know, you're in this, and I just was curious for your thoughts on how do you keep the momentum going, uh, and what are you seeing success with? Yeah, I mean, I, I think nothing has changed in terms of great businesses take years to be built, if not decades. Uh, it, they ca that can't happen in 12 months. We're at the 12 month mark right now. So, you know, we've got capital to go build for many years to come and that's what we signed up for. So 
this is not like a sprint, it's more of a marathon for us and is, we're just getting started. So I think that the, the momentum game is a foolish one to play. If you're always just out there trying to like pump bags and get people hyped up about the next drop, it's like we're in this for the art and we believe that NFTs in particular are a new type of canvas for digital artists. We think that is a, a brand new vertical that needs to exist and should exist and should stay around and will be durable more so than whatever meme happens to pop up the next week. And so we're leaning in very heavily into the art side of the business. And so, you know, for people that want to chase momentum, there's tons of other projects that you can look to, you know, every other day practically. And that, but that's not our game. We're, we're, we want to build something that's, that's going to be around for a decade or, or longer. So here, here. Yeah, so my question is going to be about the 10,000 generative pieces. We see a lot of NFT projects launch that. And when I think of NFTs, because I've been in the game since end of 2017, I think I got my first NFT from Consensus in 2018 or 2019. But do you think that the 10,000 generative pieces is sustainable model for NFT yeah. projects? Okay, for the future. And talk to us about why. Yeah, I mean, you can't, the NFT world, is, especially as it applies to art, is you know largely driven around rarity and scarcity of assets, and ten thousand is just a shit ton. And so for us, we we tapped twenty two artists to create those pieces. Some of them AI driven, some of them generative, some of them one of one, some of them additions. And so we never really wanted that supply to get too large because then what is it? It's not very that it's not really collectible at the end of the day. You just have one of several thousand, right? So 10,000 is not our model. Our model is to find you know, an artist that does 50 or 100 great pieces and then offer that up to our community. And so you know, it, it, we really look at it as our job is, we call it kind of cur curation with a point of view where we go out and we try and find the next up and coming artist. Love people, honor that he's part of the, the drop, but we want to find the next people. We want to find the next X copy. We want to find the next blue chip artist before they become big introduce them to our audience, hopefully they collect them, and then they have something very meaningful, you know, a decade from now. Kevin, I'm dying to ask you about two things. The first being the phishing attack. You know, when we talk about NFTs, we hear so much about scams and phishing, and on this show, we try and tell our users, you know, how to protect themselves, what to do, what to look out for. Can you tell us what happened? Talk us through what happened and, and how you think about protecting your NFTs now. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I, I clicked on a link essentially that was, air, it was an airdropped piece into my collection that I was expecting. So it was something where 6529 had been done a drop, I saw that there was a piece of my collection, I was expecting something from that collection, uh, it had a link to a website, it all looked legitimate, and it wasn't one of those things where you approve all and you sign away all your NFTs, I just signed a couple signatures which essentially said anything that I had already pre-approved OpenSea to sell on my behalf, they could sell. And so they sold a handful of assets for zero cost to the hackers. Very basic attack. Um, in terms of what I've done to pre prevent that, not a whole heck of a lot. I'd already been deploying pretty much the best security I, I possibly could at the time. I, I've since kind of segregated and moved certain high, higher value assets into different wallets that I don't touch more frequently and, and put them into cold storage. But you know, this is, this is truly the signs of an early market. It, it, it is so dangerous. There's so many rough edges that haven't been sanded down 
that like we have to focus on as a community. And I, I, it's, it's promising to see some of the top wallets out there now, like MetaMask and others that are introducing better, you know, d even just ways to, to tell you what's about to happen with the transaction. They, do, they call these things like transaction simulations before they actually go through. So they can come back and say, hey, if you sign this, 10 of your NFTs are gonna go missing, right? And so there's a few other little uh, add-ons that are you know, Chrome extensions that can do that today, but that needs to be built in at the wallet level and we'll get there, so it's, it's early days. I'm glad you brought up tools because my second question has to do with tools. You know, at the center of NFT projects of DAOs that we were just talking about is community. How do you think about keeping this community engaged and do we have the right tools to actually achieve these engaged? I don't think so. I think Discord really sucks. It's horrible. Here, here. It's, um, <laughs> It, is, it gives everyone uh, the same level of microphone. Um, and so, you know, it, and it leads to kind of like, if it, it can really compound and, and really amplify negativity in the space. And so, you know, part of what we're doing this year is building tools that are more focused around art and around conversations around art that actually leave discord. So I think that's going to be um, and really enabling and helping people surface great art that we should be paying attention to. Okay, I got to ask you about ordinals because that's what I like the most, and I have my own ordinal set. So fake Bitcoin. What do you think about like NFT technology right now, and, and the things that have been built on top of it? So maybe the wallet discussion is pertinent here, but also with like the interest in other chains adding uh, NFT technology or necessarily getting into NFT game for the first time. Yeah, I mean there's. There's a handful of chains, obviously, that, that support NFTs. I think at the end of the day, there's two things to consider. The durability of the chain over the long term. Like, is it going to be around two decades from now? And then also the artists that are actually on that chain. And so, you know, I, I would say that Tezos probably has the best underground, inexpensive, like really experimental kind of indie crowd of, of great NFT art. Um, with Hen and some of the other platforms that are over there. A lot of the kind of mainstream generative artists that made the jump to Ethereum and art blocks started off as generative artists over there. So you can actually collect their artwork for a fraction of the price if you're willing to go over, install Temple Wallet, get involved in Tezos. You know, Ordinals is interesting. It's, it is a, a very sneaky, kind of like fun, difficult way to squeeze the data in and piggyback on Bitcoin. It's, again, the, the tooling isn't there for the exploration, the sale. There's a lot that needs to be built out around that. You know, I'm, I'm excited about, nothing about the inherent design of NFTs is broken. Like, this needs to exist. It's a durable technology. It's something that has guaranteed and proven provenance. Like, there's so much to love about what this technology could bring to bear. But again, it's, it's, it's early days, so that's, that's why we have startups. That's why we're here to explore. All right, last question. I'll take it. You mentioned earlier on you're thinking about this more like a membership pass. Obviously, we hear a lot of talk around making NFTs have utility. I'm going to ask you to look 12 months into the future. We're here on the same stage again. We're talking about the NFT scene at Consensus 2024. What do you think is the defining sort of trend in the NFT space for the coming year? Uh, I think there's going to be a flight to quality as there has been. Um, you know, I think that the, there's this idea of just, there, there's a lot of exchanges that have started to create and turn NFTs into penny stock, commodity, high frequency trading assets. And that is horrible. It's not, it takes the focus off the art. 
It turns them into um, meme and hype-driven assets. And I think a lot of people are gonna get burned, and that worries me. And so, you know, I hope that a lot of people understand and see that that is not sustainable. And it's always this like game of like, who's gonna be left holding the bag? And that, that is, is troubling because ultimately someone is and, and, and they lose money. And so that's kind of like why I believe that the, the companies that have the most focus and clear vision around what they wanna go after, um, you know, I, I think we're seeing a lot more of that happen. Like whether it be, you know, Doodles or Gary Vee or Moonbirds or these others that say, this is who we are, this is the segment we wanna tackle, this is the IP or the brand that we wanna build. There needs to be that clear line in the sand of like, we're not about high frequency trading of these assets. We're actually a project that's a real business that is set out to build something. And I'm hoping more projects make that leap versus just this being a hype driven environment. Awesome, well we'll leave it there, we'll do it again next year. My story, Voyager, Binance US, that deal fell through. Voyager revealing today that they were very surprised by this announcement from Binance yesterday. Voyager just keeps getting rugged by these potential acquisitions. We had FTX fall through, now Binance US is falling through for a number of reasons. We'll talk about it right now. Jen. Okay, I wonder what, I just wonder what's going on behind the scenes. When I was reading the story, I immediately uh, thought back to the SEC trying to interrupt in the sale, right? Well, you will remember the, the judge said that the SEC had uh, no right to try and interrupt in the sale uh, and push them away. And then we didn't really hear what was going on. And now we're hearing that it's not going to happen due to uncertain regulation in the States. This is just a really sad story to me because there are so many people waiting to get their money back. Wendy is one of them. So Wendy, I'm going to pass it <laughs> off to you. But it's just so upsetting that regulation in the States can kind of stop the everyday consumer from getting their money back. The regulation is there to protect those people at the end of the day. And here we see um, it kind of failing. Wendy? I think it's actually really sad. And I feel like um, Americans should kind of unite together and file a class action lawsuit against the SEC because this is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> no, I'm being Wendy, are you going to lead it? I, I want to lead it. I mean, it just it's, it's getting ridiculous at this point. Like, you say that you're here to protect retail and then you actually do more harm than good to retail. Like part of the reason why we have the crypto contagion, why all these companies collapse, is again, we talked about this in the Bahamas stories. We didn't have clear guidelines. Japan got it. They told their exchanges, segregate client funds. I'm not really sure. I mean, US, well, maybe it's because US banks aren't even required by law to do that. As we saw First Republic kind of get halted today for earlier today for trading because of the volatility, because I want to say they had a 32% drop. So just getting really ridiculous at this point. I mean, I'm a big girl. I know if I leave my crypto on exchanges and the exchanges rug, I'm out of money. I learned my lesson in Cryptopia years ago, Merca talks when they wouldn't give me my funds back. Um, I could, the list goes on and on and on and on. But really at the end of the day, Gary Gensler should be removed from office. He should be prosecuted for harming retail investors. And I'm being, I'm, I'm saying this, this is, this is exactly how I feel. And I would tell him this as well. Well, harsh stuff. Okay, let's go back to the story itself. And like, some of the details here are pretty interesting, right? It's a $1 billion estate, quite a bit of money. At first, Voyager went under because of what happened with Three Arrows Capital, right? They had a lot of uh, obligations there. Three Arrows Capital also rug pulled. Now they're starting their own exchange that actually lists the claims to Voyager, right? Or will list the claims to Voyager once this can go through. 
chapter 11 claims. Uh, so pretty tricky business stuff there. In the meantime, uh, Voyager has been trying to offload this chapter 11 with all its assets so that customers can be made partially whole. As you can see in the subtext there, the subheader, 40 to 65% is what customers are looking to get back. Could be in crypto or it could be in dollars. The question there is around regulators, right? Are you okay with it being in crypto or do you want it to be in dollars? Because there's a security question along with this. And that's where the SEC got involved with it in the first place, right? Over the last few weeks, we've been seeing the SEC kind of push back on this deal being made because they didn't like the fact that customers might be paid back in crypto. Why? Because that crypto might be security under the SEC. The judge went forward and kind of slapped it down saying, eh, you can't really do that. We need to make these people whole as quickly as possible. And there's not enough guidance from the SEC to understand this whole situation. So you guys need to stop playing the games. We need to make these customers whole. That didn't really happen though because Binance US pulled out. And as you said, Zach, FTX was the first business that made a uh, announcement that they intended to purchase these assets from the estate of Voyager, then FTX collapsed, then Binance US picked it up, and then now Binance US is withdrawing. So what a carousel for these customers. Pretty tough situation. Zach. I mean, it was actually good that FTX ended up, not in that type of way, I don't want anybody to get hurt financially in any way, shape, or form, but it was actually a good thing that FTX backed out I'll say it like that, because it would have been absolutely detrimental. But honestly, like somebody does need to be held accountable for these actions. The amount of money that gets burnt in Chapter 11 bankruptcies is absolutely disgusting. Like these attorneys, they bill so much, and I get it, attorneys have to do their job. That's not a slam at you, Jen. <laughs> You're a legal expert. I get it, but at the same time, it's like you have innocent people on the other side, and it's just very unfortunate that they allow this to continue to go on, because I do believe with this story, they're gonna go ahead and revert back to the toggle feature, and basically just chapter seven, liquidate everything. So instead of people getting maybe like 10% more, they're gonna actually get less. And at the end of the day, the customers were hurt. Yeah, it's also worth looking at what Binance US is saying, right? They're saying, hey, this is a super harsh regulatory environment in the US. And I think the subtext there is that they're fully aware that they're still kind of in the crosshairs from US regulators, right? We saw action against the BUSD stablecoin because it was administered through Paxos, which is a US-based company based in New York, right? So I think Binance is still well aware of the fact that US regulators are trying to claw at ways to reach around the neck of Binance, as it were, and I think this is probably the subtext of why they don't necessarily want to make a $1 billion bet on their continued future in the US. So that's kind of like how I read this, but it's a bit of tea leaves, I don't know. Yeah, no, I like that because like the whole reason for this in the first place was to acquire those customers, right? Once they, they have Voyager, they have the assets, they have the customer's information, and you'd think that you could bring them into Binance US and have those customers and you know get a multiple on bringing those dollars back into your company. But if the SEC and other government agencies don't want you there, then it doesn't really make sense. But we can leave that story there, and let's go talk about a Bitcoin story. Talk about the Bitcoin white paper, which has been hiding within your MacBook for all these years. Since at least 2017, there has been a copy of the Bitcoin white paper buried quite deep within your computer if you own a MacBook. This was first noticed in 2021 on an Apple forum. Nobody really cared at the time. And then it resurfaced again a few months ago. And everyone on Bitcoin Twitter got really excited thinking, oh, maybe Satoshi put this there. Or maybe, <laughs> maybe Tim Cook is Satoshi. Or, or maybe there's like a hidden maximalist revolution uh, bubbling up inside Apple. Manifesto. That didn't happen. And Apple's going to delete it. So the story's kind of come to a close here. But it's a fun one, right? Like, we, we love it. 
False hope, those Bitcoiners and their false hope. Bitcoin. Apple really does hate crypto, y'all. Don't worry, they're still gonna ban that crypto apps from the App Store. They're still gonna take their cut on all transactions therein. I don't think the mood has changed, despite some euphoria that at least some like sleeper cell at Apple is like really about Bitcoin. <laughs> I don't think it changes the picture in the big in the in the in the big picture. And now we're seeing, reportedly at least, a nice sort of like funny conclusion to this tale that got people all hyped. But I don't know, Jen. Tim Cook could still be Satoshi. Tim I don't think we have enough information to rule that out completely. <laughs> I think this is. I think this whole story is great. I know I said when that story was published about this Easter egg, the Bitcoin white paper being on MacBooks, that it's just. I love that every now and again we get this Bitcoin white paper story that introduces it to people who may not have heard of it before, and whether or not people are going to go and find it on their MacBook, they may go and find a copy of it somewhere online uh, and read it and be introduced to the space that we're also involved in. So I love the story. I don't think we have enough information to say that Tim Cook is definitely not Satoshi. I will stick to that one <laughs> until I die. Wendy? I think this is a cool story and this is just goes to show how important organic marketing is. I feel like the person that placed this in all the Apple devices was just some dev and that was super interested about Bitcoin. It's like, you know what? This is the best way to do it because let's face it, Bitcoin can be anything that anybody that's using it wants it to be and that gets really really community powered and it does show almost true decentralization i won't say that bitcoin created a true decentralized economy because there's a lot of very strong opinionated bitcoiners who do enjoy censoring other people with conflicting views i'm very very sorry well and i'm also very sorry george but I think it's a cool story. It's free marketing. It's fantastic. Um, but I'm sad that they're removing it. Maybe um, Windows will get these in our PCs now, the Bitcoin white paper. Maybe. I hope so. I hope that's the next Easter egg. Yeah, or All maybe PCs we'll get maybe out. we'll get Ethereum. The Ethereum white paper. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, one fun Easter egg out of this whole story, not really an Easter egg, but sort of like a subplot here, was Craig Wright. So he's probably not here. I don't know if, if, if Craig Wright is here. Come to the stage. <laughs> uh, but he, known... Bitcoin antagonist, at the very least, uh, claimed to be Satoshi and has been suing a lot of Bitcoin developers for not only working on the Bitcoin code base, but also for hosting the Bitcoin white paper. So in this story, what you see is Apple hosting the Bitcoin white paper and a known antagonist of Bitcoin going after Bitcoin developers for hosting it themselves. You have a clash, right? And I don't think Craig Wright who's been suing these Bitcoin developers is going to go after Apple. And so a lot of people did like this sort of angle on the whole story saying like, maybe the Bitcoin maximalist like was like playing 3D, 4D chess and like figured out a way around this. That's probably my favorite line about it. Maybe that's why Apple is gonna get rid of it. Maybe yeah. they're afraid of Craig Wright. Yeah. He's so scary, <laughs> big and mean. Yeah, RIP Craig, it's not gonna happen anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, but it seems it's been removed probably on your laptop right now. That is about it. We are getting into another interview right now. Please help me welcome Juana Ruxandra. She's the Chief Digital Officer and EVP at Warner Music hey Group. Juana, welcome. How's it going? Thank you so much for being here with us. We know you have a super busy schedule, so let's get right into it. <laughs> I was so excited to hear we were talking to a record label executive because the record labels, I think, when we think about the music industry, have been very extractive in their business models, right? Artists have been very vocal about that. Tell me about the conversations that are going on behind the scenes. 
How are record labels thinking about actually using Web3 to help empower artists? Yeah, so I think that um, everything you said is true. Um, how we're thinking about Web3 is broad, and we're thinking about it from like the consumption and creation pattern, right? So let's take a, take a step back. 100 years ago, music was an experience. People went to shows, they experienced music with patri uh, with artists and the communities were coming together. And then music started being productized, it started being put on vinyl, which created songs and created albums. And then music was productized into this format that I think was a lot less um, social, a lot less engaged. And so with new technologies, what we're seeing is that music is going back to its roots, which is social, engaged, community-based. Um, and that's how we're thinking about Web3, right? Like how do we build engaged communities that are long-term around the artists that these communities love. And then that touches on everything that the artist does, right? Like communities are definitely um, interested in not just like the song, but like who that artist is, what they're doing across all of the things that they do, right? Like we're working with an artist right now that loves pottery. And so we're evolving their community around like that pottery interest. And so those are the experiences that we're really focused on. And then obviously Web3 is a big piece of the foundational community building, right? Like providing NFTs to people so that they have ownership of these communities in ways that they didn't have before. From an artist level and also a record label level, has there been any pumping of the brakes since the FTX fallout? <laughs> um, I think that we at Warner did a really good job of being non-exploitative about the work that we're doing. We are deeply embedded in this space. I've been deeply embedded in you know the Web3 NFT blockchain um, side of things for a long time. When I came back to Warner in 2019, my first investment was in Dapper Labs, which obviously started a lot of the craze. So. Um, I think that we understand the space in a way that a lot of maybe others don't. What definitively happened during the Web3 time was that some of our artists came to us saying like, where's the money? <laughs> How do I uh, use NFTs to drop something that people will buy? And by the way, like other people and other executives at the company were saying the same. I think that we've understood that that was going to be exploitative, that um, our fans of our artists are long-term and consistently engaged, and that we need to focus on the long-term over the short-term. And so the work that we've done has always been, um, you know, again, like, what does community want? What does that consumption pattern look like? And that's um, why we're so focused on this long-term. But yeah, definitely in the short-term, there was a lot of... Um, there was a lot of running at things. Now I think that like the conversation has become a lot more nuanced and a lot more evolved and the artists that are should really be in the space are the ones that we're talking to as opposed to kind of like a free for all and everyone should be looking at the space and it not really working for a lot of the times, right? Like not every artist should do something in this space right now, right? Like some artists should and some shouldn't. And the ones that shouldn't, shouldn't understand it and start experimenting, but don't need to start with like big drops or anything. And so um, I think that things haven't slowed. They've continued to press for us, but I think it's slowed overall in industry. All right, so I want to zoom back to like that 2019, 2020 window. Yeah. You know, crypto is about decentralized all the things, death to the middleman, these rent seeking companies. And you go in to Warner and you're like, we should do this Web3 thing. Yeah. Um, did that sort of like raise the hackles of top execs? And if so, how did you ultimately make the pitch to make it something understandable to them? 
and that they wanted to invest in for the long term? Yeah, I mean, I think that every new technology has opportunities and challenges, right? And I think that there are those in whatever industry, including the music industry, that are fearful of like new technologies and will be more conservative than others. And so, yeah, of course, like those conversations were a part of having people understand what like, uh, you know, blockchain was. I mean, like the first conversation that I had around blockchain was around a crypto kitty, right? Like it was a picture of a cat and I was like, we've got to invest in this company and no one knew what I was talking about, right? So like it took a minute to like have those conversations and then I think there was a, some fear. But like ultimately I think that uh, in this future state where artists are influencers across everything that they touch, right? Like um, fans aren't just looking again for like an artist to create music for them, but also for an artist to have these experiences for them, be tastemakers across all types of different media, all types of different consumption patterns. So like for these artists that are tastemakers and that have ways in which to experience their communities in different ways, they're gonna need to be able to get the right piece of content to the right platform, uh, to the right audience member in the right format at the right time. And that takes experience. It takes best practices. Uh, it takes teams of people. And the other big piece of it is um, that marketing is going to be that much more important, right? Like there's going to be so much noise. You're going to be inundated with so much stuff that um, having to have teams of people that are marketers is going to be a big part of artists that are able to break through. And so I definitively think like that labels will be that much more important. Um, which is why I'm at one. But I think that we have to evolve our business model and evolve, evolve our value proposition, just like every new industry. The other thing about like the music industry is that it gets hit um, more quickly than a lot of other industries, which is why it's so exciting and why it's so um, interesting to work in. But it also feels these growing pains more quickly. So um, we're definitely feeling them. And I think, um, you know, there's definitely some conservatism. But like for the most part, I think people are far more engaged with new technologies than they had been before. All right, quick follow-up. Music yeah. NFTs, either in a personal or professional capacity. Yeah. What's your take? Uh, does it enable like a direct-to-consumer relationship between artists and fans? Yeah. And is that potentially like like an existential threat to the record label model. Right. Um, I think that the idea of taking like web two models, i.e. like a song or one of the platforms that are out there now and just like tacking on web three and blockchain is not going to be an effective, successful proposition. So like a song with an NFT on it, no, like I don't think that that's going to be a big part of this future state that people are monetizing. But I do think that um, uh, artists will have overall ecosystems in which they use blockchain as part of the bigger whole. And so like music, if a music NFT is a song with blockchain tacked onto it, like that is just a Web2 idea with uh, NFT and it's not Web3 and it's, you know, meaningless. If you're actually building a community that is um, blockchain based and that you're engaging people with Web3 experiences and Web3 moments, then I think that's really exciting. Okay, we got to ask about AI. Saw the Drake song, yeah. blew up everywhere. How are you guys thinking about AI and Web3 products yeah. and music? I mean, again, like I think that there's a lot of opportunities and I think there's a lot of challenges. Like with AI, I think the two biggest things that we're so focused on and we, that we think are so exciting is one, um, as adults, we stop creating in a real way, right? Like I used to draw the time, now I don't draw anymore because like that final product is so crappy that I don't even like want to get there. And I think that with AI, like it's creating final products that are really serviceable. And so we're bringing back for adults this idea of creation in a way that I think will open up um, the world 
like we haven't had before. And then the other piece of it that I think is really exciting is that people will have music creation and sound creation at their fingertips, just like we all are photographers now. I think people will all be creators of music and creators of sound in a way that they haven't been. And I think that will open up new forms of creativity and subgenres and all of those things. And so I think that's really exciting. Definitively, there are challenges and those challenges come when these models are infringing on artists' rights and artists' copyrights. And we have to be very vigilant about what that looks like. And obviously we're talking to a lot of partners um, about what it is um, that these models are being trained off of. Um, but like, of course, like we want to protect creativity and we want to protect our artists and songwriters' copyrights. Arwana, thanks for agreeing to do audience yeah, questions. You are the first, you're the bravest, you're the best <laughs> guest. We have an audience question and then we're going to wrap it up. Nicole has the mic. Who wants it? There we go. Nice. <laughs> All right. Hi, everybody. Um, it's awesome to be here. I'm a Long-time listener, listen every day, shout out. So yeah, my question for Juana is, how are you going about innovation? You mentioned a bunch of things you're looking at, but how do you go about it? Yeah, um, I think one of the biggest pieces of the puzzle is actually investing behind innovators. We built out a fund that we invest through, um, which has allowed us access to entrepreneurs in a real way. Um, putting money behind these entrepreneurs is a big, the, one of the biggest pieces of like the innovation puzzle. Um, so I think that's like a key part of it. Uh, I will say that also what's again what's exciting about music is that everyone wants to build with music and everyone really understands that value proposition. We have offices everywhere like locally and globally and so we're seeing all of this incoming from these companies that are building and want to build music as part of their experience and so all of these companies are coming to us proactively and then we also have this fund where we can really invest behind a lot of the innovation but like those are the two biggest pieces of the puzzle. I actually have a question so I've been around musicians my entire life yeah. around a lot of that stuff and I know that they touched on a little bit about the AI stuff and that like the change in the business model but and, and like again NFTs and music NFTs are still super super early and the yeah. platforms that we have and the systems that we have aren't even scratching the surface of the problems in the industry so for yourself that you because you've been in the industry for a long time doing a lot of the corporate stuff but how are you going to be able to convince your supervisors and people above you like hey this new model is not working. How are we going to actually convince artists to sign with us? Like, what are going to be the perks for them to sign with the record labels when they can really just kind of do it themselves? Because we've seen the creator economy really expand since the early 2000s with the rise of YouTube. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing for music labels and generally everyone that's wanting to support an artist is providing a real value proposition, right? The way in which we get artists to sign to us today is by providing something to them that they're not getting from services and tools. And so we're going to have to keep on upping the amount of value that we're providing. Like tools definitively are coming out that will allow a lot of people and a lot of artists to um, speak directly to their creators. And so we have to be able to provide those services, but then also go a step of beyond, above and beyond, which again, like I think the key things for this future state for like superstars, right? Because some artists will completely be able to be fulfilled by like these tools and some artists will need something more. More, and where we come in as a label is providing that something more, which is there is going to be a need for marketing in a real way. We've got massive teams of people that are building best practices and have best practices around marketing. Again, same thing for helping people to define their communities and define um, the way in which they engage these communities. Like all of that stuff takes best practices um, and, and, and data and um, uh, scaled solutions to be able to provide the right content in the right formats, right? Um, where it, again, which is where I think 
think labels come in. But we do have to evolve our business model. And again, like that's true. Like the music is, industry has to evolve every essentially decade. And now it's just happening more and more quickly. Yeah, because there's just so many different areas of like the licensing rights, the branding totally. rights, and all those things. So it feels like there's going to be <laughs> a little bit of pullback. But at the same time, it seems like something that you guys might have to modify because that's really the big problem is with a lot of the licensing, with a lot of the different rights that are getting pieced out and the artists not getting as much as they Right. Want. Yeah. I mean, again, like an artist will come to a label for the value that they provide. And so we better be providing that value for sure. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Wanna, well, thank you so much for the perspectives from Warner Music. Appreciate we love it. that. That's our first edition of The Hash Live this year. We'll be back again tomorrow, same time, same place. I'm Zach, Wendy, Jen, Will. Thank you all for being here. We'll see Thanks, you soon. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. <laughs>